0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for our Final Thoughts series, where we bring you the final thoughts of folks who are dying and tributes to loved ones who've passed. A eulogy, a poem, anything and everything that stirs the soul. This week's Final Thoughts feature came to us from the terrific website, thefederalist.com, where a father named Jeremy Lott shared his eulogy to his daughter, Cecilia, who passed away in a stillborn birth. Jeremy recorded his eulogy as he delivered it at the funeral, and he graciously shared it with us all. Here's Jeremy.
1: I was going to say that the text of this eulogy is included in your booklets um, because its delivery is probably going to be as much of a struggle as the writing was. And I was going to tell you to feel free to read along or just tune me out and read it later. But uh, it ends with a bit of a cliffhanger, so you might want to listen. (laughs) How do you eulogize a girl who never lived? She never crawled, walked, spoke, cried. We don't even have honest dates for the tombstone since that clock starts at birth. By the time of her delivery, my daughter had left the building. Start with her full name, which she would have hated at times because children tease. Cecilia Little Lot. Cecilia is perfectly lovely, so of course my wife Ange came up with it. But that middle name would have dogged her. Have a look at her parents with their wide frames and my truly enormous head. There's no way our little girl would have been little for long. That part of her name would have been a running joke like a bouncer named Tiny. The headstone isn't ready yet because those take time. Here is what will eventually be inscribed in granite for future generations to puzzle over. She danced an Irish jig and was a peekaboo champion. There are a couple of stories there. Many philosophers have insisted that every new human is a blank slate, a tabula rasa. But mothers have always known better. They know that each of their children has a distinct personality that they see manifest even in the womb. Of the three brothers' lot, I was the one who was active at all hours. I rarely slept in utero or after, to my mother's great consternation. My cousin Jenny recently had a healthy baby boy named Aiden. In the womb, he hated intrusions on his space by any but his mother. When the doctor put sensors on her belly to get readings, he targeted and successfully kicked them off. I see soccer in his future. And our little girl, Cecilia, loved to dance. We discovered this when we were en route to her fatal diagnosis at Swedish Hospital in Seattle. We made some stops along the way, including one in Anacortes. On a whim, we went uh, to a night of Irish music there. She was only 16 weeks old, and yet Ange discovered she was kicking and more or less in time to the beat. She loved moving her long legs when she heard Irish music. She also grooved to Latin music. And, you know, she was a true Washingtonian because she seemed to appreciate grunge while bad 80s soft rock left her cold. She responded to other sounds as well. Ange thinks she might have been shy or perhaps intently curious. When there were familiar voices around here, she would be active. In the presence of new voices, she would pipe down and listen. She knew her father's voice. When I read books out loud to Ange, she kicked... We attended a conference, and Cecilia was getting a little rowdy up in there. So I leaned into my wife's belly and said, Knock it off, kid. She surprised both of us by doing just that. But you probably want to know about the peekaboo, right? Ultrasound is an amazing technology. We see by way of sound waves and reconstructions on a screen. We could see evidence of a pregnancy before, but now we can see life in the womb. It's right there on the monitor. You, you, can, you can almost touch it. One of the things on that monitor that struck many viewers about Cecilia is, is what she did with her hands. She did intelligent things and playful things. She folded and steepled her fingers as if in thought or prayer, and she liked to put her hands in front of her eyes and take them away. As you looked at her, she did this peekaboo routine so often that it sometimes made it hard for us to get a good look at her. When she was still with us, we shared Cecilia's story with people. The great interest and support in money and prayer and in so many other forms was surprising. Here you have this little girl who would not live for much longer. She would never grow up and make her mark on the world. She might not even see daylight. But people wanted to know about her. They wanted to help in any way that they could. As you'll see from the children's books on the table to be donated to the library in her name, they wanted to commemorate her. Like so many other things about this pregnancy, Cecilia's end surprised me. I had assumed that she faded away. But, like philosophers, we writers imagine, and mothers know better. Ange tells me it was a bang, not a whimper. As so many things failed her Cecilia gathered up all of her strength and kicked really hard in protest one last time it was the internal equivalent of uh, you know that one left a mark and after that she was gone right now the news of her ending fills me with great unimaginable sorrow But I hope that will eventually give way to fatherly pride. Of course, no daughter of ours would ever go quietly into that good night. She was fierce. And we loved her fiercely. And that's all we could do. Thank you for coming.
0: And thank you, Jeremy, for sharing that. His eulogy to his daughter, Cecilia... And thanks to TheFederalist.com for providing it. Jeremy Lott's story, Cecilia's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories. And that was a dog sneezing, if you can believe it. One more time, Jesse. And that was BarkPost.com's selection from the number one viral dog video of 2015. And we played this delicious sneeze, and I'm sure all of you have a different sneezing dog sound in your life. And I have a, I have a very loud pug when it comes to snoring, and I am going to record that Just for this guest, the next time she joins us, and it's Jory Larson now joins us, and she is, well, she's the key person behind BarkPost.com. Thanks for joining us, Jory.
2: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: You know, many people believe dogs are people. I do. I mean, they are members of my family. I want to play another short clip for you, this time of dog owners treating their now famous dog, Mishka, with over 100 million YouTube views like a human. Mishka,
3: I,
2: I, love love you. You. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love
4: you. Good
2: girl. I love you. <laughs> I love
5: you.
0: <laughs> Joey, in your case, you gave your dog an actual IQ test. And it That's didn't go right. and it didn't did. go well. Talk about that.
2: Yeah, sure. So, um post. one of my editors came to me and said, you know, we, we have this idea for um, an at-home intelligence test that you can administer to your dog and then just write about the results and see what happens. So um, I followed along. There's an Internet doggy IQ test that you can follow along at home. Um, I, I took an afternoon, and I had my husband photograph it so we could have some pictures for the post. And I kind of went through, um, I think it's about four to five steps, do it in less than an hour Um, and i was really curious to see what winnie's iq would be like any dog owner um you know you think your dog is the smartest dog in the world at times and of course they also have their derpy moments is how we like to refer to it when they're uh, behaving like less than an einstein but um the test actually it was really interesting to see how Winnie reacted i I really couldn't have predicted how she was going to perform
0: And your Winnie, your dear Winnie, is a two-year-old Australian Shepherd, right?
2: That's right, yeah. It's (laughs) pretty pretty known for their intelligence, Um, right up there with border collies. At least that's what Australian Shepherd owners always kind of, uh, maybe it's a myth that we're circulating around that they're as smart as border collies. Um, But yeah, so she rings a bell when she tells us she has to go to the bathroom outside, which I always thought. Was kind of uh, a sign, you know, a signifier of intelligence. Um, so I was really curious to see how she would perform.
0: Well, I can tell you this: I have uh, pugs, and I don't even need to give them an IQ test, Jory, because these dogs—they're just not bright. They're not particularly smart, and they cannot be taught. I have given up trying to train them. I've owned them my whole life, and anyone who owns pugs knows what I'm talking about. Talk about your, you you said at one point, you said about your dog, I swear she understands long strings of English, and she rings a bell to tell us when she has to go potty. That's pretty damn smart, Jory.
2: Yeah, yeah. So we actually, um, I think we got this idea from a book that we read when she was a puppy. We hung um, a bell next to the door. And we started when, we got her when she was 10 weeks old. So we started right away. Every time we took her out to go to the bathroom, we would ring the bell. So she would start to associate that feeling of having to go to the bathroom with ringing the bell. And she got it within two weeks. So she was, she was less than three months old. She would nudge the bells with her nose and then we would know to let her out. Right. So we thought that was pretty cool and pretty smart.
0: Yeah, it is pretty cool, and it's it's darn smart. And again, I I'm getting jealous listening to you describe the intelligence of your dog because ours are are so silly. They they don't even know where to poop. I mean, they they get confused about like pooping. So tell us about the test you did with well a, that involved a blanket and your dog's head. Talk about that test.
2: Yes. So so the first step in the intelligence test is to toss a blanket over your dog's head in, in one swift motion. And then you're going to start your stopwatch and you're going to time how long it takes for them to kind of shake off this towel off their head. Right. So when we first threw it on, she she did nothing. She froze. And so I started to think, uh-oh, this, this might be a red flag. Um, and I, I think what it was is she might have been a little frightened by, you know, what, what are mom and dad doing to me right now. Um, so she did wiggle off and she shimmied it off in 19 seconds so that earned her three points on on the scale. And if it took them, you know, thirty one seconds to two minutes, okay, you only get two points. Um, if you try but you don't get the blanket off at all in two minutes, the dog only gets a point. And if the dog doesn't attempt to do anything, just lets the blanket kind of sit there until you come to their rescue, right. They get zero points.
0: They get zero. Again, my pugs, yeah. I know there is zero, Jory. I don't. I don't have to run them through this test. Talk about talk about some other things that you're you're you're, you're testing in, in this in this space. What are some of the other things you look at in terms of dog sure. intelligence?
2: So we also there's another um, test where you're kind of seeing if they can understand almost object permanence. So you place a high value treat, so whether it's salami or string cheese or whatever your dog you know really wants to get at, you cut up a little piece and you put it underneath. Um, like a dish towel, a regular towel, a blanket, and you make sure that they see that it goes under there. Right. And then the whole point is to see, start to stopwatch again, how long it takes your dog to actually get the towel off the treat. Um, and this is where our Winnie had her first setback. She couldn't do it. She could not get the towel off the treat. And at one point, she's actually kind of trying to suck the string cheese. Through the towel, it's like <laughs> right. she, re- she gave up totally. She kind of resigned herself to the fact that she wasn't going to actually get to chew the string cheese, but maybe she could slurp up some flavor. So that was that was a minor setback.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure how my my producers would do on that one though either. I mean, I don't think they do well either. They just try to eat through the towel. Any other any other test, Jory? Uh, t- talk about some other parts of this intelligence test. Uh, this is fascinating.
2: Yeah, sure. So um, the third. The third step in this test, you um, it's a, it involves a treat again, so you're going to cut up another piece of your high-value treat, and you make a little wooden plank, you know, maybe a foot off the ground, um, supported, we did books on either end, and we place the treat underneath the wooden plank far enough away that your dog can't quite reach it with her her muzzle alone. She has to use a paw. That's This is sort of testing, you know, do they have the wherewithal to, to use other tools to get to the treat besides their their snout and so you cover it with a towel and you start the stopwatch again and uh you time it to see how long it takes them to actually paw the towel out you know get off the towel and get to the treat um and so with Winnie again she she pawed at the towel she was able to pull it from underneath the plank she understood that she had to use her paws but she could not she she never understood the concept of actually getting the towel off of the treat. So she started to chew. This time we used a milk bone. She started to chew the milk bone through the towel, and actually she put a hole in my brand-new towel, which I should never have used for this time.
0: <laughs> yeah, probably not. Maybe you get a bad score on the owner test there, Jory.
2: <laughs> right. And I will say, I think, you know, with any dog that you're testing, I think Winnie was a little thrown by all all of these tricks, and I think she was kind of suspicious. So, if you do this test at home, you have to take it with a grain of salt because your dog might just be kind of thinking, what's up with mom and dad? I'm not going to perform.
0: Right. The heck with them. What are, the, what are they doing to me? And this is uh, this is their goofy way of entertaining themselves. I'm not on for this. You know what I love, Joey. Send us some material periodically. We are fascinated with dogs and human beings. And I think as people are getting lonelier, too, as people are having smaller families, uh, the pet, I think, is playing a more central part of human beings' lives, and I don't know if you, you agree with that. Maybe just a quick second on that. Do you, do you think that's what's happening in part, Jory?
2: Absolutely. I, I really do. I, I feel like dogs, and and cats probably too, but dogs are our specialty at Bark Toast. Um, I, I feel like more and more people are treating them like members of the family. Um, you know, you see, whether it's a high-end doggy daycare or, you know, you, you don't have a dog there anymore, you take them to a nice boarding place, a nice kennel. <laughs> it's I feel like everything um, is kind of going a little bit more of the luxury route when it comes to pet ownership. Um, Yeah, and it does feel like maybe maybe there is something there that the families are getting a little bit smaller. People are living further away from their family members. So it's nice when you come home after a long day, you open the door and – you know, your dog is always going to be so happy to see you, and and it makes you feel like home right? well, whenever you're with your dog.
0: I think so. that's what's going on, too. And I know that my wife is now spending more on meals for my dogs with their fancy food than me. And so that- <laughs> I, and, I, and I don't care. I, I've, I've, I'm done fighting it, Joey. The dog now is more important than me, and I'm fine with it. Jo, Ree Larson, thanks for joining us. Keep sending us stuff. We'd love to hear more from you, from Bark Post, and from the animals. Thanks so much for joining us. Sounds great.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And Jesse's just having so much fun playing with the dials and playing the dog sounds. And we love animals here on Our American Stories. And we love sports. We love love, and we love music. And when we come back, more after these messages.
5: I have noticed eyes you can't see
6: through.
0: This is our american stories and this segment belongs to jesse we've got two stories from jesse or two pieces from jesse and the first is one of our favorites here
3: on the show shower thoughts shower thoughts if fish could scream an afternoon of fishing would be a lot less relaxing i have no problem swallowing saliva while it's in my mouth But once I spit it into a glass, it becomes disgusting to even think about swallowing. Wet towels clean up dry messes, and dry towels clean up wet messes. They should sell Ziploc bags in a Ziploc bag, not a box. I correct autocorrect more than it corrects me. The land of milk and honey... Sounds a lot better than the land of goats and bees. Imagine if men could suffer from preceding hairlines that over time merged with your eyebrows. If a seeing eye dog takes a dump in public, who picks it up? Is the guy who writes the credits at the end of a movie put in the credits? If everything in the universe suddenly doubled in size, we would have no way of knowing. If cannibals were on a strictly human diet, would they be considered humanitarian? Having a high IQ with no people skills is like having a high-powered computer with no internet. When it's a good thing, we nailed it. But when it's a bad thing, we screwed it. Saying the Los Angeles Angels sounds pretty normal but changing it to all spanish or all english and you would say los los angeles angeles or the the angels angels why doesn't spider-man ever bite anybody one time i had i'm a believer stuck in my head and i kept singing it my friend told me if i didn't stop she'd never talk to me again i didn't believe her but then i saw her face What if there are ghost birds all over the place, but we just assume that they're regular birds?
0: Shower thoughts. And thank you for that, Jesse. And this is another story Jesse found us at one of his favorite websites, one of ours too, and that's Reason.com, a great place to find out stories about all kinds of things as it relates to your citizenship, your money, and particularly the nanny state, that is the degree to which the government has just started getting more and more involved in our daily lives, particularly as parents. And so this story came from Zach Weissmuller at Reason. And, well, Mike Tang is refusing to reply with a court order and may face more jail time because of it. What's this story about? Let's take a listen.
7: Mike Tang was charged with child endangerment for leaving his 8-year-old son in this parking lot a mile from home. It was supposed to be a life lesson. The night
8: where I dropped him off, I just wanted to reinforce that money is hard to earn and if he doesn't do a good job at school, he could end up, you know, doing something like this or sleeping out here
7: where the homeless people sleep. He dropped him not far from the recycling area and walked away sometimes
8: there's a guy there and you see people on bikes Uh, they look kind of ragged could be
7: homeless Mike says his son Isaac had been slacking in school the last straw was when Mike caught Isaac cutting corners on his homework by reading his little sister's book instead of his own it's an eight-year-old kid who didn't read his book right why would you do that
8: well first of all I've tried other things right and they didn't work So that's my take on it, and I'm trying different things. If this doesn't work, I might try something else next time.
7: About 10 to 15 minutes after dropping Isaac, Mike sent Isaac's grandfather to go pick him up. It was 8 o'clock and getting dark. Turns out Isaac had already been picked up. He was in police custody. A stranger had spotted Isaac and called the cops.
4: He said, why was I walking home? And did I know where my home was?
7: And did you? You know how to walk home from the, the park?
4: Yeah, I know how to walk from, from my school to my house.
7: The cops arrested Mike, and he spent the night in county jail. A jury later convicted him, and the judge sentenced him to attend parenting classes and to a 56-day work release program picking up trash. Mike is refusing to serve the sentence, and there's an outstanding warrant for his failure to comply. He scrawled a response on top of the warrant and mailed it back. Walking on a public street, a sidewalk, at 7.45 p.m. is not child endangerment. Is Mike right, or did he jeopardize Isaac's safety? And was it appropriate for the police to intervene?
9: Mike Tang is one of the many American parents who decided to give their kids some independence, in this case as a disciplinary measure, who have their parenting second-guessed by the authorities and find themselves arrested.
7: Journalist Lenore Skenazy is the founder of the Free Range Kids Movement.
9: Walking home a mile on a route that the kid already knew does not rise to the level of danger. It rises to the level of unusual, it rises to the level of perhaps controversial, but it was not literally dangerous. That's not a crime.
7: The state of California says child endangerment occurs when someone willfully causes or permits a child to be placed in a situation where his or her person or health is endangered. Did Mike endanger Isaac? Their hometown of Corona has a remarkably low crime rate, and Isaac knew how to get home and properly use crosswalks. Police and county officials refused to comment for this story, but court transcripts from Mike's trial give us a sense of the arresting officer's thinking. Witness, in my opinion, if I was in your shoes, I wouldn't have left my child there. I have a 20-year-old daughter that I would not
9: let her walk home. The 20-year-old walking home in a safe town is not safe enough what is. When we hate the parent for what they're doing, we think they're wrong, we automatically overinflate the danger that we see the kid in. There was a study done at the University of California at Irvine asking people how much danger a kid was in when the parent let the child wait alone in the car.
7: It turns out that the safety of the children wasn't what mattered most to the people surveyed in the study. They were actually passing moral judgment on the parents.
9: So if a mom lets a kid wait in the car because accidentally she was hit by a truck and she was out cold, that's okay, the kid isn't in so much danger. But if she was going to meet her lover and left the kid in the car, oh my god, we think the kid is in way more danger. We are making moral judgments every time we see a kid unsupervised. And the more we hate the parent for leaving the child unsupervised, the more in danger we think the kid is. Maybe this is not the way you would discipline your child, it's not the way I disciplined my kids, but he's trying his best. And to treat parenting like a spectator sport, and if you wouldn't have done it that way and I think that was wrong, nobody thinks that any other parent is raising their kids right. But if you're a cop and you have the power to arrest, and then you're a jury and you have the power to hang, you are giving too much power over an individual's parenting decisions to the state.
8: If I had to do it all over again,
7: you know, I'd do the same thing. Because of his refusal to serve his sentence, Mike faces possible jail time.
8: Uh, If I don't have the freedom to discipline my kid, if they don't even have the freedom to walk outside, I'm already in prison right now. So what does it matter if I go to prison or not?
0: And thanks, Zach Weissmuller, for that piece. And Reason.com is where you can find more like it. And I just know my own life, my dad, my mom made the decision to let me and my five buddies get on our little bicycles in northern New Jersey, go across the George Washington Bridge, go to Harlem and play basketball. We left at seven in the morning. and We came back when the sun went down. They'd be in jail right now. I learned my independence. I never got in trouble. And I learned how to play a damn good game of basketball. This is Lee Habib, Mike Tang's story, here on Our American Stories, The Nanny State. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Faith in Action segment, where we tell stories about what people of faith do in the public square. But stories not told often enough in the public square. This week, it's a story we read in Philanthropy Roundtable's Philanthropy Magazine, a story that inspired us so much, we asked our field correspondent, Stan Die, to chase it down.
10: barnhart is the ceo of barnhart crane and rigging a premier heavy lift and transport company based in memphis tennessee worth some 250 million dollars with more than 30 branches and a thousand expert employees if you want to move something big say 19 million pounds of hardware at a nuclear power plant barnhart can do the job but you may be surprised by some things that the barnhart children have not been able to do like take trips to Disney World or buy toys that their family can presumably afford. As Alan says, It has
11: been a great benefit, I think, frankly, to my children to not have to grow up as rich kids and to learn the, um, learn the word no and learn that they don't always get what they want. That was the theology from the Rolling Stones that I taught them. You don't always get what you want. You know that little song?
1: (laughs) You can't always get what you want.
10: And that's not the only surprise. We went
11: to advisors and said, we'd like to give our business away. And they thought that that was uh, (laughs) improved. They thought that was not something that we should do.
10: Whoa, wait a minute. What madness is this? That almost sounds like the setup for a TV show where we say stranger and stranger things to people in suits and see how long they'll go along with it. But actually... Alan's seemingly odd request to give away his whole business is as sincere as it gets. This journey began some decades ago when Alan was in college. My roommate and I, we'd always challenge each other and we started talking about world hunger
11: and specifically about the famines that were going on in Ethiopia at that time. And uh, we started wrestling with it and and, um, how how can this be, what can we do And, and started asking ourselves a question of how can we live like we're living lifestyle that we have when brothers and sisters in Christ are starving to death and we wrestled with that for a few days and decided that we needed to do something and uh, we had planned to go skiing out in Colorado a few months later and we decided to take the 350 bucks that we were going to spend to go skiing and send it to World Relief or World Vision I think it was to help the situation in Ethiopia and we instead went to the local lake for spring break It was probably the only sacrificial gift I've ever made in my life. And I know that my 350 bucks didn't change much about Ethiopia, but it
10: changed me. And it was a a turning point in my life. After graduation, Alan joined the family business and eventually took the reins along with his brother Eric, a responsibility he took seriously and in ways that you might not expect. And so I
11: decided that I would study through the Bible and read every verse I could read about about business and about money and wealth because that's the field that I was going into and part of the whole purpose of business is to make money so what does the Bible say about money and I went through the whole Bible over about a two-year period and I'm an engineer so I'm kind of cataloging verses and, and trying to figure out what scripture is saying and I, and I came away from that study with two primary takeaways and the first one is that everything that I have and everything that I am has come from God and belongs to God and I am a steward of it and my job is is to figure out what God wants me to do with the things that He's given me. None of it belongs to me. I have no rights. I'm a steward. The second one may surprise you a bit. The second one was, I came away with a fear of wealth. A fear of of business success. Um, If you start thinking about the Scriptures, how many scriptures really would point to that fear? There were many of them. You know, Jesus said, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why did he say that? He said, he said, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth.
10: This was a fear so great that Alan, Eric, and their wives made plans to protect their families. And so we made a decision
11: on the front end before we had any money, and before when business was just starting. And the, and the decision was this we're gonna set for ourselves a financial finish line, a salary, a middle class salary that we're gonna make. And if God chooses to bless this business beyond what it takes to generate that salary, we're not gonna see it as a call to increase our lifestyle, but instead we're gonna see it as an opportunity to take that, that money and use it to fund ministry. And so that was the commitment that we made on the front end. The second thing that we did is we told other people about that commitment. We made the commitment before the Lord, but we also told others, including people within our company. And that locked in
10: our decision. It gave us some real accountability. Think about that for a moment. Many folks reflect on wealth, charity, and legacy towards the end of their careers. Here we have a family that set a financial finish line for themselves as they barely left the starting line before their business grew very much at all but grow it did.
11: So now we, we were ready to start our business. We had set these guidelines in place or these safeguards in place and we started our company. Um, it was very small, again, just uh, 10 guys in Memphis and we didn't know if we would even survive the first year because it was a mom and pop business and mom and pop were leaving. And, uh, and we, but the first year we actually made some money and uh, we were so excited. We were able to, uh, we had $50,000 extra money that we were able to give away. And we got to, one of the other things we said on the front end is, if we do have any money to to invest, we're going to do it as a group. And so it started out, there were six of us that got together and prayed and said, God, what do you want us to do with this money that you have generated? And we took it and we gave it away. And the next year, the company grew some more. And I think we had $150,000. And and each year, the company just continued to grow. And it grew about 25% a year for the next 23 years. For you math guys, that means it was a hundred times bigger than it had been, and went from a very small company in Memphis to a company that works all over the U.S. and has about a thousand employees. And our ability to give greatly ramped up. I mean, we got to the place in the early 2000s where we were we had a we had a million dollars a year to invest in the kingdom, and and we had a much bigger group now trying to help us figure out how to do that, and praying and saying, "God, what do you want us to do?" And uh, in 2004, one of our guys said, "We got to set a goal." He's a salesman. You know how salesmen are. We got to set a goal to give to, to be able to invest a million dollars a month into the kingdom. And we thought, "Yeah, yeah, okay, whatever." And uh, but the next year, our industry just started boom, 2005 to 2008 were great years in our industry, and and we went from a fifty million dollar company to a two hundred fifty million dollar company during that four year period, and. Uh, and throughout that period and ever since we've been able to invest over over a million dollars a month into the kingdom and we're just amazed at what God is doing we have no vision for this no thought that this would ever happen God has just chosen to pour out um, uh, a huge amount of business success on our company
10: the Barnhart's immediately donated half of their profits to charity and reinvested the other half to grow the business the $50,000 they gave the charity in that first year was more than Alan's entire salary. This voluntary income cap kept the Barnhart's from ever earning more than their peers at Sunday school. But Alan will be the first to say that this is not some poverty lifestyle. We have six children. The poverty level for a family of eight is $35,000.
11: And uh, that's about $4,400 per person, which would put you actually in the top 15% of people in the world. If you lived at the poverty level, that would put you in the top 15% of the world. And uh, and we live at about three and a half times that level. So, so our salary is not a, a sacrificial salary, we make about $125,000 a
10: year and have everything that we need. Every bit as amazing as their engineering prowess or capitalist success story is their guiding moral vision, keeping them accountable from day one. A vision that's now a special sort of inheritance for their children. The Barnhart kids maybe didn't get new cars when they turned 16, but they certainly got something. Our children have had the benefit
11: of not having to grow up as rich kids, which is a difficult thing for kids to do. They've also had the benefit of of seeing um, the world. We've, we've traveled with them a lot, and we've also had the benefit of, of people from in all types of ministries sitting at the dinner table talking about what they do. And so our kids' perspective has been broadened. and. Uh, we believe in leaving our kids a rich inheritance and we are trying to do that we think that has very little to do with money in fact we think it would be almost it's almost counterproductive often most often
10: to leave them money but uh we leave we would want to leave them a very rich inheritance reporting for our american stories i'm stan dutt
0: that's great work by stan and there's one other point i wanted to add here that we didn't cover in the story The barnharts they keep operational control of this business, but they've given ownership of the business to the National Christian Foundation, and they did it to protect their hearts. And in the end, to keep that business going, and when profits are pushed out, they go to the kingdom. And that's the best of both worlds, my friends. The Christian heart at work and the entrepreneurial mind at work. And you'll hear this story only here on Our American Stories and stories like it. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about everything here on this show, including sports. Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. You can't tell the story of one without the other. On this day in history, basketball legend Magic Johnson retired. This is the story of love, friendship, and basketball.
5: It is Indiana State against Michigan State. The Bird against Magic. All of the superlatives have been used... It all began in Salt Lake City, Utah, on the night of March 26th, 1979. It was the NCAA championship, Indiana State versus Michigan State, a game that still ranks as the highest rated college final ever on television. A game that's now remembered as a prologue to a rivalry that transformed a sport and intertwined two legacies. Here's Larry Bird and Irvin Magic Johnson just before the big game, it would be the first time these two would go head to head on a basketball court.
4: Well, this is probably
6: the biggest game I'll ever play in my life, and I just feel like, you know, I'm representing not only myself, my team, but we're representing our school and our, and our town of Terre Haute.
4: Was well, uh, a dream come true really for me? Uh, I won the state title back in my home state, and then my next accomplishment was going to the NCAA and playing in uh, a game like tonight in the finals.
5: They were two stars made to compete, but only one of them had been groomed for the spotlight. Born August 14, 1959, Irvin Johnson grew up in Lansing, a gritty industrial capital city of Michigan. He was one of Christine and Irvin Johnson Sr.'s ten kids. Christine was a school custodian, while Irvin Sr. worked two jobs nearly around the clock. Here's Magic Johnson.
4: My father, he got up early every morning, 6 o'clock or so, and uh, he went to uh, work on his trash-hauling truck every single day. Around noon, he would come home, catch a nap, and then he worked for Journal Motors for 30 years. And he won an award for never being late and never uh, missed a day.
5: As a youngster, Irvin displayed his own strong work ethic on the blacktop. Here's Magic and his sister, Evelyn.
4: I was out there all day long. Before we went to school, the bus leave at 7, 7:30. I was out there at 6, 6:30 working on my game. From a very young age, Irvin knew what he wanted to do. He had it all planned out. My dreams were to play in the NBA and become a businessman.
5: Irvin was preparing to go to his neighborhood high school, a basketball powerhouse. They're predominantly black. Sexton High, but when Lansing began busing to desegregated school system, Irvin's journey took an unexpected detour to the predominantly white Everett High School across town.
4: My first day at Everett High School was my first time I really had to understand there was a, a race problem. Nobody white would speak to anybody black, and nobody black would speak to anybody white. A lot of racial tension. A lot of fights, rioting. He kind of shrugged it off, and
5: basically his attitude was, okay, well, I'll I'll overcome this. Here's Irvin's high school basketball coach, George Fox. Whenever there was any racial problems, the principal would get Irvin and go talk to these kids.
12: I can just see him with his big hands, calm down, just calm down, he'd break up fights.
4: Talk with his friends, tell them, you know, let it go, you know, we can't fight about everything. Let's
5: just chill. Let's play basketball. Irvin's talent was so great that soon after his varsity debut, a local reporter, dazzled by his exploits, gave the budding star a nickname.
4: In the beginning, I thought it was foolish and dumb. You know, I didn't know nothing about a nickname. Then what happened was you start saying, wait a minute, it fits my game. Hanging out with my boys on the street corners, we used to sing temptation songs. They started saying, hey, man, Magic, that's cool. And then people on the street started saying, hey, Magic. And I said, hmm. (laughs) He bought into it, and um, I think he felt he had to kind of live up to that name. And I must say that he did. He
5: loved it. The more attention he got you know he just he wanted attention from anybody he could get it from
4: <laughs> yeah it does um i really love the game and
12: uh, i just want to win gets
5: it over and back
13: and he jams it through urban johnson
4: irvin loved to dress nice sandabelle pants and overcoats with the the fur around the collar always had to have his afro blown out he had to look the part play the part
12: Irvin was the first guy
4: to have a posse he not only had a posse of a lot of black kids he had a lot of white kids and hanging around him some of my white friends was like hey man uh we're having a kegger tonight won't you come on by and i'm said what's a kegger so he said well what it is we get this big keg of beer and you just go for it okay well, what time does the, the kegger start? Because regular party time in our neighborhood is 10, 11 o'clock. Uh, the kegger starts at 7. I said, the party starts at 7 o'clock? And I said, okay, man, I'm going to come to the kegger. We had a good time. The music was kind of bad, but we had a good time, you know.
5: In his senior year, Magic did at Everett what he had planned to do at Sexton, win the state championship. And when it came to choosing a college, he decided to stay home in Lansing.
4: Next year I will be uh, attending Michigan State University.
5: At MSU, Magic star quickly went national. But at the top of the college game, he soon discovered a certain presence beside him.
4: The first time I saw Larry Bird was actually in a magazine. I saw his stats blown away by his stats but let's see if he can really do it against us and that's always a mindset of black players if he's a great white player in
5: 1978 after his freshman year the 18 year old magic would quickly find out when he and bird were both chosen to play for team USA in the world invitational tournament Spectators had never seen their pass first, shoot later approach. It was refreshing and they quickly became crowd favorites.
4: It, w- it was blowing my mind because he's dominating Jack Givens, player of the year in college basketball. Larry Bird is eating him alive. I couldn't wait to call home to tell my boys man, this dude named Larry Bird is for real. This is the baddest white dude I've ever seen in my life.
0: And when we come back, more on the story of Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, their stories here on our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Larry Bird and Magic Johnson on this day in history. Larry Bird retired in 1992. And as always, our This Day in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go and study and learn all the things that matter in life. We last heard of what Magic initially thought of his 1978 Team USA playmate, Larry Bird. Let's pick up on what Bird thought of Magic.
6: I thought he was very good. There's no question about it. I Actually, I thought he was probably the best guard
4: on the team.
8: Irvin Johnson, look at that. Oh!
6: We didn't get to play a lot, but you could tell.
4: I think our first game was in Kentucky. We got about a 10, 12-point lead. and they put us in. Went to 25, 30, just that fast.
8: Fast break again. Three on two. Rip it. Wow! Well, that's by Larry Bird.
4: Take us out. The lead go back down, put us back in.
8: That's Bird and Johnson.
6: The show started again. When you play with Magic, there's just something about it. You want to make that extra
4: pass. You want to get that rebound and start to break. We came down a couple times. I go behind my back, no look to him. He no look back to me, and I'm laying it up. I'm saying, Oh
3: man. Here's that last play. Magic Johnson going in, drops off to Bird. Bird puts it back off inside to Johnson. Super has oh,
4: This guy got game.
5: They had some wonderful moments on the court, but the two had no meaningful conversations. Such brevity was hardly strange coming from Larry Bird, who was not only one of college basketball's greatest players, but also its biggest enigma. Larry Bird grew up in southern Indiana, in the tough working class town of French Lick, population 2,000. Tiny and remote, it was one of the poorest places in the state. Arriving Pearl Harbor Day on December 7th, 1956, Larry was the fourth of six kids born to Georgia and Joe Bird. Early on, he and his four older brothers earned a reputation around town. Here's older brother, Mark, and Larry.
12: We were always considered troublemakers. We're either fighting amongst ourselves or there was always one of us fighting somebody. Larry was always one that kind of instigated things, you know.
6: If I get my brother in a fight with somebody his age, I was happy as hell because i like to see him get beat up, and that's just the way it was. If if I got in a, a scrape with some kid And my brothers didn't come to my side. They knew that when he got home, my dad was going to whip him.
12: Larry and my dad were best of friends. They'd done everything together. When my dad would go out to my grandma's house, Larry would always go with him. They'd go fishing, do a lot of things together.
5: Larry's father battled his whole life against the demons caused by PTSD, which stemmed from a tour of duty in Korea. A talented craftsman, Joe Byrd struggled to hold steady jobs.
6: My mom sometimes worked late and sometimes she had two jobs, but that's the way it was. I worked at school during my lunch hours, worked at the local grocery store, put up hay in the summer. I mean, if you wanted money, you had to get it on your own.
5: To young Larry, actions spoke louder than words. He was very quiet.
12: Kind of hung to himself a little bit. I saw Larry take an F in an English class because he had to get up in front of his peers and give a speech. He said, I won't do it. But he just could not get up in front of his friends and talk. He was that shy. Of course, next thing you know, when he knew it was time for all of us together at the gymnasium, there he'd be. The minute he'd get a basketball
5: in his hand, things were totally different. He was good enough for Indiana University's most revered and feared coach, Bobby Knight, to come calling late in his senior year. And since the Birds didn't own a car, Larry's uncle tossed Bird's loan bag in the back seat of his Ford and drove 49 miles north to Bloomington to play ball for one of the best college teams in the land.
6: Once I got to IU, it didn't take long to realize that I was out of my cocoon had over 30-some thousand students that I didn't have the funds first week and a half I thought man this ain't gonna work
5: after 24 days on campus bird packed up his duffel bag and hitchhiked back to French Lick he did not tell anyone of his plans not even coach Knight let down reverberated throughout the entire community
6: let my mother down she did not talk to me for two months but it didn't matter what other people say to this day i don't care
5: back in french lick bird went to work for the city meanwhile that winter his father's demons had taken him to an even darker place here's jackie mcmullen author of the book on bird and magic when the game was ours
13: by this point joe and georgia were divorced And he was behind in his payments to the family. The police came by, and of course, they all knew him. So Joe said, hey, I need a few hours to get my affairs together before you take me away. So he called Georgia, and he said, you guys will be better off without me, and I'm going to take my life. And he put the phone down, and and he killed himself. He shot himself.
5: Here again is Mark Bird and Larry's high school coach, Jim Jones. When Dad passed, you know, it hurt Larry. I mean, that was his best
12: friend. It's gone now. And, but Larry didn't show it a lot. He just didn't say much, you know, he just kind of held it within. I never, I never heard him speak out about it at all.
5: Here's Larry.
6: I was mad when I heard about it and I was madder after the funeral because I thought he sort of cut out on us during a, a tough time. But, you know, he went, he went through a lot in his life He did what he had
5: to do. Here again is Jackie McMullen.
13: If Bill Hodges hadn't been as persistent as he had been, Larry Bird might never have existed in any of our minds. I believe that with all my heart. I really do.
5: It was Bill Hodges, the persistent young assistant coach from Indiana State University, who convinced Bird to give college hoops another shot. So with the promise to his mom to graduate, Bird headed to ISU, a school that never so much had been to the NCAA tournament. This fact did not faze Larry Bird.
6: Once I started playing, it's the same old thing. You know, he's at a small school, and he ain't playing
5: against anybody, which is fine. Still dominated. By the time he had led Tiny ISU as a senior to a 33-0 record and a spot in the 79 title game, Larry Bird had become, alongside Magic Johnson, the talk of college basketball. The day before playing in the most widely anticipated college title game ever, Magic couldn't wait to greet his old playmate. Here's Magic.
4: Indiana State was on practicing, and we were waiting in the tunnel. We got there early. I wanted to definitely say hello to Larry, you know. When they came through, it was like nobody was saying nothing. I wanted to go toward him like his guys like made sure that he didn't say nothing, and then they kind of start snickering like, missing State, you in trouble, we're going to kill you guys tomorrow.
6: I probably did snub him. I don't remember it, but I'm, I'm sure I did. I didn't want any, you know, like I call it, love fest, hugging and, and, and slapping high fives with opponent. You're there for a reason. You're there to win a game.
4: That just said it's on now.
5: Heading into the tournament, Magic was the bigger star. But by tip off, it was Bird, having hardly missed a shot in the semifinal, who had become the focus for the fans and, more importantly,
4: Michigan State. We actually had two men on Larry everywhere he went.
3: Look at the pressure around him. Two, three left, and he's short.
4: I didn't play well at all.
6: Biggest game of my life, I didn't play well.
4: Toughest loss I ever took. I, I knew it was going to haunt him forever, because we were going to see each other a lot.
1: The National Basketball Association, in its 33rd season, is troubled by diminishing crowds and declining television ratings, signs that fan interest may
5: be waning. College basketball was flourishing at the end of the 1970s, but... After the golden era of Bill Russell and Jerry West in the 1960s, the pro game was crumbling. But on a balmy afternoon in June, while Larry Bird was playing golf in Santa Claus, Indiana with his longtime friend, Max Gibson, a stranger hollered to them. Larry Bird, you've just been drafted by the Boston Celtics. What does that mean? Bird asked. Hell, I don't know, he said. Indiana State's season had just ended in heartbreak in Salt Lake City at the hands of Michigan State, and the Celtics made a pitch to sign Bird for the final eight games of their season. The young forward opted instead to teach flag football, baseball, badminton, and dodgeball at the local Indiana high school. His duties also included teaching mentally disabled children, a CPR course, and a driver's education course. It was an unbelievable experience, Bird said. And when we come back,
0: more on this great story. Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, paired forever. Two legends, two men from such different walks of life. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we last heard that Larry Bird passed on the Boston Celtics offer to bypass his senior year and instead spend the summer playing and serving in his town. Let's find out what else Larry Bird did that summer going into his senior year at Indiana State University.
5: One evening that summer, Bird was playing baseball and positioned in left field when a hard rolling ball smashed his finger and bent it backwards. I looked down, Bird said, and my finger was all the way over on the other side of my hand. Bird had to have surgery. How long is it going to take before it's healed? Bird asked the surgeon. Son, I'm not sure it will. He was right. Today, Bird concedes, I never could shoot as well again. Bird finished his senior year at Indiana State. And then in the spring of 1979, the NBA's sixth selected draft pick arrived with great hopes for the city of Boston. Here's Walter Cronkite.
11: There's hope he can help solve professional basketball's difficulties, which some say are compounded by a question of black and white.
9: The great white hope, what does that mean?
11: Well, you know,
6: it's very hard to say because... There's a lot of great white players around, and, and I just hope that I can just fit in as well as some of them that has fit in. You know, the, the great players are the black players, and they're the best.
5: Such regard meant little to black Celtics. Guys like Cedric Maxwell, who looked at Bird and saw not the great white hope, but another case of great white hype.
4: I think that you would say that most black players at the time were racist, in, in the sense that... We did not think that you could find a, a white guy who could play better than any black
6: guy. When I walk in the first day of camp, them guys were on the floor stretching, and here comes the white savior, here comes this, here comes that. I sort of enjoyed it because I knew I was going to battle them all day. But Curtis and Sidney didn't last long. They didn't even make it through the first practice, and they were cut. So then it was just Cedric. I'm
4: thinking, oh, he's slow. He can't get off a shot. He's not that strong. This is gonna be a layup. Bam, knocks down a jump shot. Okay, maybe that was luck. Gets the ball again. Bam, knocks down another jump shot. Now I'm thinking, like, okay, hey, you know what? I'm gonna D this guy up. I'm gonna show him his life. 20 feet away, bam, 25 feet away, bam. I, my mind just goes so
5: good. Damn, this white guy can play. It was a good thing, too. The storied Celtics might have been the winningest team in NBA history, but they were fresh off their worst season in 30 years. And in Bird, they not only had a player who was supremely talented, but tough enough to take on any challenge.
6: Larry Bird plays it to the help, baby.
5: Talent, toughness and confidence aside, Boston also liked winners. And when Bird led the Celtics to the NBA championship in just his second season, he was finally one of those two. And
3: Larry Bird is right in the middle. He's the eye of the hurricane known as the Boston Celtics.
5: Boston loved Larry Bird. It just wasn't so clear at first how much Bird loved the city back. Here's Bird speaking at the city parade celebrating their NBA championship.
6: There's only one place I'd rather be,
4: French Lick. Thank you.
5: He proudly dubbed himself the Hick from French Lick, and he looked every bit the part. But those who played him for simple did so at their own peril.
13: One of the great ways, I think, of winding up with no money in your pocket is to think Larry Bird is dumb. Syntax is not intelligence. Unlettered is not stupid.
5: He did, however, allow the public one small indulgence.
13: You could come out on Saturday and watch him mow his lawn.
4: Huge crowds toward the stop. Larry Bird is cutting grass in front of his house. (laughs) He's mowing his lawn in the springtime.
13: Larry is about doing things himself. And I think it's one of the things that made him so beloved in Boston.
5: But as Bird navigated through his new world, he still had one eye fixed on a familiar foe in a faraway land.
13: It is
12: now exactly 12 noon. The draft is officially open.
8: The first pick. The Los Angeles Lakers select Irvin Magic Johnson, Michigan State, 6'8",
5: pounds. In the stoic Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the Lakers had talent, but what they were lacking in was energy. Irvin Magic Johnson was only too happy to provide it. Hello, hello. Here's Brian Gumbel. Lift the place up.
1: Change the franchise. Changed the temperament. I Changed it from the very first game.
8: Sky hook up and
1: win. Here it was, the first game of a long season against the lowly Clippers. And Magic was embracing Kareem as if they'd just won their 10th straight championship. It was
5: like, man, this is a different kind of dude. Here's Magic's close friend, Arsenio Hall. From the day he arrived,
3: he became the prince of the city. He reminded me of a guy who wakes up without an alarm clock, and that's what I used to always say. I want to be happy enough to wake up without an alarm clock because I want to go into my world.
5: Here's former Lakers head coach Pat Riley.
3: He had it, what it is. As far as I was concerned, the it was not his ability or his size. The it was his attitude,
5: was his leadership, was his mind. In his rookie season, Magic led the Lakers to the 1980 NBA championship. But what Bird couldn't possibly have known was that he had inspired Magic's performance when he was named Rookie of the Year that same day. Here again is Jackie McMullen.
13: The PR person from the Lakers says, Hey, Irvin, the Rookie of the Year voting has come out. And Magic says, Okay, well, who won? He said, well, Larry Bird won. And Magic says, well, was it close? And he said, oh, no.
5: Bird won the award by a 63 to 3 margin. Magic received the remaining three votes. Bird won the title the next year, and soon after that, black kids began showing up at the playground wearing Bird's number 33 jersey. Magic was surprised the first time he saw it, especially because it was on the blacktop in Los Angeles. Bird also had a close eye on Magic. Magic.
6: I'd get up in the mornings and see what he did because their games came on late. Then you look at the box score. I had to have him there for some reason. It was like a crutch somebody I could compare myself to.
4: I hated what was being said, that Larry was better than me, and I'm just a guy who can control the game. My first four or five years, that bothered me a lot. I didn't tell nobody it bothered me, but it did.
5: Their competitive dislike emerged from a greater truth. That on the court, they were two of a kind. Basketball prodigies who fused the substance of the 60s with the style of the 70s to create a new and exciting, yet selfless way to play the game in the 1980s. But with continued low television ratings and tape-delayed finals, the NBA was struggling to get the word out. After the NBA signed a new TV deal with CBS before the 82-83 season, the rescue plan was simple. Sell more magic and bird. Here again is McMullen and Ted Shaker, former executive for CBS Sports.
13: You got this slick, showtime African-American guy out west, and you got the lunch bucket, floppy-haired white guy with the bruises all over his body. It's central casting. It's perfect.
10: I mean, this was like made in heaven. In 1979, this idea of magic and bird was created, and so that was sort of a no-brainer. We'd have a doubleheader. It would be the Celtics playing first and the Lakers playing second, and that's the way we did it. In
5: 1984, when the Celtics and the Lakers both reached the finals just a year into the TV deal, the superstar investment was about to pay off. It came down to Game 7. It was like college in 1979 for Magic and Bird. Magic and the Lakers flew into Boston for Game 7.
4: The plane pulled in like the whole airport just stopped and turned and just stared at us and guys running up magic larry's gonna kill you larry's gonna kill you and so just looking and everybody yeah bird's gonna kill you magic when we come
0: back the final installment of this terrific hour-long story larry bird magic johnson forever paired together this is Our American Stories. More after these messages. Our American Stories, and we return to the story of Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you with their terrific and free online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. There are 16 or 17 of them up right now, and you can get a real college education without even going. And now let's return to the final installment of Larry and Magic's story.
5: Game 7 of the 84 series was the highest rated game the NBA had ever produced. But Magic was not rejoicing.
3: The Boston Celtics are
13: Well, it was a big deal. I remember asking Quinn Buckner about it afterwards. They had a celebration in downtown Boston after they won the championship. And, you know, it was unusual for Larry to have these little outbursts, as Quinn would call them. But, you know, about 1130 at night, finally he turned to Quinn, he goes, I got him. I finally got him. And he was talking about magic.
5: The two teams met again in the NBA Finals the following season. But in the 1985 Finals, Magic flipped the script, winning the clinching game at the Boston Garden. But the significance of their rivalry and their relationship was about to change. Converse had convinced Magic and Bird to shoot a sneaker commercial in the summer of 1985.
4: You crazy. <laughs> I said, you are crazy. I'm not shooting a no commercial with Larry. So I said, okay, what, we're going to shoot it in L.A.? I would never went to LA to film
6: it. Well, where are we going to shoot it? You want to shoot a commercial, come to my house.
4: I was like, oh no. One stop light. I thought Lansing was small. I think the plan was, I'm gonna go here, I'm gonna do what I'm supposed to do, and I'm trying to get up out of here. My plan was that.
5: The ad was to be shot at the home Bird built for his mom just outside French Lick, Indiana. It featured a full-length basketball court, the day's first shooting location.
4: So they say, okay, you're playing one-on-one. And I'm looking at Larry, and he's looking at me like, is this real? Are we playing, playing? Because, you know, this, this is this is magic in Bird. I could just hear Larry,
12: you know, starting in on Well, you bring it to the basket, I'm gonna send it 30 rows up.
4: So the guy was like, no, no, not like that. A fun game, we were both like, oh, okay. Like, like you can see this relief coming over both of our faces. We sat down next to each other. How was your summer? Oh, it's going good. How was yours? It's going great. Said, man, it's a nice spread, you got
6: it. he's asked me, is this where you play? I said, yeah, i play here if it's not windy, if it's raining or windy, I go to the gym. But this is where I do
4: all my work. I see that tractor. You work on it on a tractor? He said, man, I work on this tractor every day. Larry Bird, work on a tractor? He said, yeah.
12: It's just them two walking and talking, and every once in a while they'd stop and one of them would say something, and then they'd start laughing.
4: Then they said, okay, break. It's lunch break time. I was going to my trailer. He said, no, my mother has prepared lunch for us up at the house. We went up to
6: the house, and we sat down there, and we talked. And my mom and my brothers thought the world of him.
4: His mother was so nice, making sure I had enough to eat. I just saw my mother. It was crazy. He charmed
6: her. He see But that's magic. He makes everybody feel welcome and
5: warm, and he's a con man. by the dawn of the 90s magic won five titles played in eight finals and equaled birds mvp tally of three the prince of la was now the king and in hollywood being royalty has its perks for magic his favorite perk was women but things were not the same back in boston Larry Bird was taking care of a nasty back injury that occurred in 1985 while single-handedly building his mother's driveway back in French Lick. But after two ruptured Achilles tendons and surgery on his back in 1991, Bird kept going to work.
6: You know, I probably should have retired in 88, 89, but uh, it's that competition. Maybe one more chance, me and Magic get together in the finals
4: but it never happened.
5: And then Magic received a phone call.
4: I'm sleeping, really, laying down, just waiting on the game, and uh, the phone rings, and uh, the voice says, hey, you got to come back to L.A. And uh, I said, okay, why? Well, I can't tell you until you get to L.A. So... I said, okay. Dr. Mailman starts to tell me that, you know, uh, through the physical that I took, that um, they discovered that I had HIV. Oh, it was everything. How is it possible? What happened? How did it happen to me? My mind is racing, you know, and uh, and then you just you just devastated.
13: The first person I thought of was Larry. I wonder what Larry thinks.
6: The day that I heard about Magic, it just sort of changed my love for basketball. It shook me up. You know, you gotta get that feeling. Probably
4: the same type of feeling I had when my father died. Called me, and, uh, we're talking. You know, it's just how you doing. I heard about it, and uh, you can almost hear both of us with some uh, tears in our eyes. And I'm choked up because he did call me, and uh, you know. when something happens to you. And then you find out who really your friends are and people who really care about you. you figure all those battles, all those things we had to go through as warriors, as competitors, and as men. And um, here, this man says, "Hey, you know what, man? You're okay." And so um, that was the greatest moment for me, too. You know, to have him check on me and. and to make sure I was okay.
5: Magic retired immediately, and Bird's 91-92 season was his last in the NBA. To his delight, Magic was invited to play in the 1992 NBA All-Star Game. He stole the show and won MVP honors, but that was just a warm-up for the encore Magic had up his sleeve. Here's Larry Bird.
6: He's not done yet because... We're gonna to go to Barcelona and bring back the gold for everyone here in the United States.
5: For the first time ever, NBA players would be competing in the Olympics on the first dream team with the likes of Michael Jordan and Charles Barkley. The irony was that Magic felt incredible, but Bird, with his bad back, could
4: hardly move. But you know what, didn't matter. We were still together. You know, didn't matter. All me clothes and hold me fast. And when he got his opportunity, he swished a few. When I got my opportunity, I still was magic.
5: (laughs) Today, decades removed from the height of their rivalry their bond endures, two impossibly different men with a connection only they can fully grasp.
6: I always always get this good feeling when I know I'm going to see him, because uh, he makes you feel good. You know, he really does.
4: (laughs) He's unbelievable. He's very private, but if he's your friend, man, you got a friend for life. And Larry Bird is a straight shooter, he'll tell you when he don't like you. That's one thing I wish I could have from that that he has that I don't have. I wish I had that. I mean,
6: he walked in here, this whole room would change, and uh, maybe that's what I always wanted to be, but I just couldn't.
0: And great job as always, Greg, and that's Greg Hengler doing the voicing and the writing on a piece that we love bringing you stories like this because you're not gonna get them anywhere else. An unlikely friendship Likely competitors, these things happen, but a unique set of talents, unique men, and a love story, if ever there was one. A love story between Larry Bird and Irvin Magic Johnson, here on Our American Stories.